Well, good morning, and why don't you take your Bibles and open them to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, as we once again have the privilege of opening God's Word. And when you do that, when you open the Bible and you start reading, it doesn't take long before you encounter sheep. And that's right, I'm talking about sheep, the world of sheep and shepherds, which we are so normally detached from, but it's all over the Bible. And even more so, God chose to use sheep and shepherds as a metaphor to describe his relationship with us. And we all know this, he's the good shepherd, we are the sheep. Of course, we get the short end of the stick with that equation, because we're the sheep. And you have to ask yourself, why did God choose sheep to represent us? And the answer is because sheep are weak and helpless and dumb. It's been said there are three levels of stupidity, dumb, dumber, and sheep. It's also been said that if you say sheep are as dumb as a brick, you're insulting the brick. Well, sheep are known for their stupidity. The only thing they do well is eat. But even that gets them into trouble because when their head is down and they're plowing away, they just get lost. They're senseless. A true story came out of Istanbul a few years ago where an entire herd of sheep went off a cliff. Their shepherds let them go free, let them roam free because they're having breakfast, didn't pay attention to them. Next thing they know, the sheep started following one of them as the leader, and he went off a cliff, so they all followed. It was a 45-foot drop. And 400 sheep died. But the first 400 broke the fall for the 1,100 that came after. So 1,500 sheep went over, 400 died. Talk about a a rude awakening when you come back after breakfast. But the sheep are, they're dumb, clueless, foolish. We could add weak. Pretty much anything that eats meat qualifies as a predator for sheep. There's really no contest. And even in the ancient world, can you picture a pack of lions versus a herd of sheep? It's not even a challenge. There's just no no contest. They literally have no defense mechanisms, no camouflage, no speed, no horns, no teamwork. The only thing they do when confronted is lump together, which we actually saw a display of a few weeks ago at the county fair. They had this display of a, a pack of sheep or herd versus one sheepdog. And that's all they do. They just clump together. And I guess their only defense is statistics. They're, they're banking that someone else will get eaten before them. <laughs> but speaking of that sheepdog, that was truly amazing to see. The sheepdog was so well trained. He, he was like an extension of the shepherd. He could move them at his own will. He could make them go this way or that way. He had an autopilot mode, they said, where he could by himself round them up into their little pen. It was pretty amazing. It made me wonder, though, have you ever seen a sheep act as a sheepdog? Meaning, have you ever seen a shepherd, he takes one of his sheep and he trains that sheep to be an extension of him to to gather and to round up all the other sheep? You ever seen that? Never. Never even heard of that. And why not? It's for the very same reason sheep need a shepherd. It's because they're so dumb. They can't be trained. It's just not possible to turn a sheep into a shepherd. They don't have enough of a brain. They can't be trained. They can't remember cues. They have no sense of direction. They can't defend the flock, they can't feed the flock, they can't even feed themselves. If you put one sheep in charge of the others, they're pretty much all going to go off a cliff. Something bad will happen. So I think we can agree, if it was your job to take one of your sheep and turn it into a shepherd, it would be the most impossible and frustrating job in the world. And when you think about it like that, you can probably now better understand Christ's frustration with his 12 disciples. Because that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to take these 12 dumb sheep and turn them into shepherds. 
And it's not an easy task. In fact, it seems impossible. And so far in the Gospel of Mark, we found it's not working. It's just not working. They've been with Christ for several years. We've recently turned a corner in the Gospel of Mark. We're now in his third and final year of ministry. They've witnessed so much of his life, but they they still don't get it. They don't get it. They don't get him. They don't even know who he really is. As we learned last week, their problem isn't knowledge. They know. They remember the events, the, the miracles. The problem isn't experience. They've witnessed countless signs and wonders. They've seen it all. They've just failed to connect the dots and to grasp who Jesus really is. And that's because their problem is spiritual blindness. We see the spiritual blindness of Christ's enemies, and we expect that. We expect the Pharisees and the opponents to miss who Jesus is because they're the bad guys. But we expect his disciples to have a clue and to get it, but so far that's far from the case. They don't. And what's worse, like we learned last week, they're seemingly no further along in their understanding of Jesus than the Pharisees and the opponents. They've been given more light, but they're just about as much in the darkness as the opponents. We wonder, how can this be? And the answer is spiritual blindness. At the very least, so far, we've gotten the picture that the disciples, if they're going to get Jesus, it won't be on their own. It won't be because of them. They don't see who Jesus really is because they can't see. On their own, they're not going to come to know him. Just like on its own, a sheep will never turn into a shepherd. It's just not possible. It's not going to happen. Something must be done to them. Something must happen to them. They must be transformed by someone. And Jesus is that someone. Turning the sheep sheep into shepherds, it is impossible. But Jesus can do the impossible. He can turn sheep into shepherds. He can make the blind see. And pretty soon we're going to see Jesus do that with his disciples very soon at the end of chapter 8. He's going to take these spiritually blind disciples, and finally make them see. We're nearing the end of Mark chapter 8, which, no joke, it's really one of the most important passages in the entire Bible. It's coming up. The disciples are finally going to get who Jesus is, and that that event is going to change everything. It's a watershed moment. He's going to give them eyes to see, and then he's going to multiply their understanding just like he multiplied the bread. But before he makes his disciples see spiritually, first we've got one more little passage where what do you know? Jesus just so happens to make a blind man see physically. And do you think that's a coincidence? That just happens to happen right here? It's not. Passage for today, Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 26. It's a special little passage. It's one of only two accounts that's only found in the Gospel of Mark. This is very unique. It's only right here. You won't find it anywhere else. And Mark includes it for a special reason. It highlights the fact that only Jesus can open eyes. He's the only one that can make the blind see. In reality, the disciples are blind. We're all born spiritually blind. But Jesus is the cure for blindness, physical and spiritual. There is a little twist, though, in the story. Because, although... It seems normal. This is the only healing that Jesus performs that doesn't seem to work at first. Jesus, he touches this man, and he's only partially healed. He's got to touch him a second time for him to be fully healed. It's never happened before. And it makes us wonder, why? What's up with that? 
there's something significant there? And I think there is something significant there. We're going to find out. I want to plumb the depths of this little passage. Five verses you otherwise might skim right over, but in reality they contain some very significant spiritual truths that you do not want to skim over. So let's begin. Let's start by reading the passage together. Mark chapter 8, let's start in verse 22. It says, And they came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. And after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again, he laid his hands on his eyes and he looked intently and was restored and and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. This passage begins ordinarily enough. Verse 22, they show up in a new town, Bethsaida. Last we heard, Jesus had rebuked the Pharisees and departed from them on the western shore. Now they're sailing their land on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, right where the upper Jordan dumps into the lake. You have a little town called Bethsaida. But this is not a long-term destination. This is a layover because they're about to leave. They're about to go back to the north to Gentile territory. But they stop in Bethsaida for the moment. They're not, they don't go unnoticed. A group of men show up. They've brought their blind friend to Jesus. They're begging for him to be healed. We've seen this before. We've seen this lots of times in Mark. Someone who is in need or helpless someone who is sick, they're brought to Jesus by their friends for a healing touch. And many times we have seen Jesus heal the person. In this account, we don't know who these friends are. We don't know how they know of Jesus, but we're not surprised because at this point, especially here, pretty much everyone knows Jesus. Jesus has performed so many miracles in this city, Bethsaida. They've seen more miracles than maybe any other city except Capernaum. This is very close to where the feeding of the 5,000 took place. He'd healed many people there, perhaps almost everyone, but not, not this one guy. There's maybe one blind guy left, we think. And he, he hasn't been healed for whatever reason. So his friends, they hear that Jesus is back in town one more time, and this time they're not going to let Jesus escape without taking their blind friend to get healed. And so they do. Like I said, so far so good. We've seen this setup many times in the Gospel of Mark. Christ enters a town. He's confronted by the sick. They're looking to him for a healing touch. And he heals them. So far so good. Initially, you think it's going to be, okay, another generic healing account. But it's not. It's really not. There's more to go here. The passage does start off in a familiar way to us from the Gospel of Mark. But after that, it becomes really unusual. After that first verse, several aspects of this story just turn out to be just weird and strange. makes us wonder what, what is happening, what's going on. It's uncharacteristic. The whole thing, then, we can classify it. This is actually out of the ordinary. This isn't like how he normally deals and heals with people. We want to wonder what makes this little account so different, what makes it stand out, and what is the significance here. So let's do that now. I want to continue going through the rest of the passage, but as we do... I want to point out to you six unusual elements of this story so you can see it jump out at you. Why this is different, and then later we'll reflect on what that means. Six unusual elements to this story. And we're resuming verse 23 with this. 
begin with an unusual departure. Number one, an unusual departure. Verse 23 continues, and it says, Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. And stop there. At first, that, that seems unusual given the public ministry of Jesus. And so far, he's been fine with ministering in public. He heals in public. He teaches in public. No problem. So why the privacy here? Why this trip out of town? That's deliberate. Why is he, why is he doing that? Why not just right there, heal the guy? Why, why leave? Doesn't, want, doesn't Jesus want the townspeople to see his power, to behold his power and believe in him? And the answer to that question is, not really, not anymore when it comes to seeing his power. Had Jesus worked wonders in Bethsaida before? Yes, lots. They had seen so many, more than most. But were they believing in him? No, they weren't. This is the same crowd that after the feeding of the 5,000, they wanted to take Jesus by force and make him king. But when they realized that he wasn't going to be the king they wanted, they were done with him. They rejected him. They, they were tired of Jesus. They had, in effect, rejected him just like the Pharisees did. And speaking of the Pharisees, Jesus just, got, just finished rebuking them. They had come up to Jesus and they demanded to see a sign from heaven. You know, prove that you really come from God. Show us a sign from heaven. But it's like, are you kidding me? Jesus has already filled the land with unmistakable messianic signs. How could you ask for another sign? They had seen the signs. They had rejected. So how does Christ respond to the Pharisees? He says, no, no more. No more signs will be given to this generation. He doesn't just say to you. He says, no more signs to this generation. Why? Because they all were unbelieving. Especially these towns up north. They had seen so many miracles, but they had turned their hearts against him. So no more. This really signals the end of Christ's public ministry. And from now till the end of his life, except for that final week, there's really not a lot going on publicly. He becomes reclusive with his 12 and engages in a private ministry. And this is the best explanation for why Jesus takes this guy and, and ditches town. They've seen enough signs. They've rejected no more signs for them. Jesus only has harsh words of judgment for Bethsaida. Find that in Matthew. But to get this man out of town, though, Jesus takes him by the hand. And I love that personal touch. That he takes him by the hand, takes him out of town. This man was rejected by society. He was seen as an unclean burden that no one would dare touch. Yet Jesus led him by the hand. Now, back then, they didn't have any seeing-eye dogs. So if you were blind, you really needed a seeing-eye friend, someone to lead you places. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's personally guiding the man through the rough terrain, maybe his hands on his shoulder. He's leading him out of town. Really a privilege. This guy doesn't know who's leading him, but what a privilege he has. It does highlight, though, the suffering of the blind. You know, blindness, especially in the ancient world, was so debilitating. I think we can guess that much. A handful of people were born blind. Another handful became blind due to old age. But most became blind due to infection, disease, lack of hygiene, no medicine. Infection took its toll, and many people were brought to blindness in life because of it. And the result were these glazed-over eyes, flies everywhere, and just a miserable life. 
the blind had to almost exclusively rely on other people. They could not get around. They could not work. They could not even find food, which is why most were just relegated to begging for food by the side of the road. You see many people like that in, in the Gospels. They're also subject to exploitation. If you're blind and someone is supposed to hand you, you know, five $20 bills, how do you know they're not handing you five $1 bills? See what I mean? They're so open to be taken advantage of. And sadly, that happened all too often. They were often left desolate. But this blind man had two things going for him. One, he had good friends. He had some good friends. And two, his friends knew Jesus. And that's his ticket. They bring him to Jesus for healing. And as a quick side note, it's not the point of this story, but as a side note, having solid, godly, faithful Christian friends is so priceless. Just ask yourself, of your friends in life, do they lead you to Jesus or away from Jesus? Do they help you become more like Christ or less in life? Are they tempting you, dragging you away from the faith or running the race with you? And then, million dollar question, what type of friends do you think you should have? Like I said, Christian friends, godly friends are so priceless. Not the point, but throwing it in there. Thankfully, though, this man had some good friends. And as a result, Jesus is going to help him. But even this is strange. Secondly, number two now, an unusual procedure. How Jesus deals with this man is just, just kind of weird. It's an unusual procedure. Continuing in verse 23, he takes him by the hand, brings him out of town, and says, And after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And again, this seems a little strange. Jesus is spitting on the eyes of a blind man. That doesn't sound too pleasing. I don't even want people to touch my eyes, let alone spit on them. And I'm, I'm sure you're the same. But Jesus, he's not insulting the man. He's not trying to pick a fight. He's not, this is not a medical procedure. It's not a magical ritual. Already, several times, Jesus has shown his power to heal people with just a word. All he needs is a word. Later in Mark 10, we're going to encounter blind Bartimaeus, and Jesus heals him. Just a simple command. You're done. So there's obviously something else happening here. If you're with us back in Mark 7, and if you remember, you know the answer. In Mark 7, Jesus encountered a man who was deaf and mute. But before healing him, Jesus first took his fingers and put them in the guy's ears, and then Jesus spat and touched the man's tongue, which is equally gross. But Jesus did this as a living parable. As we learned before, Jesus wanted to communicate with this man before he healed him. But how can you communicate with someone who can't hear or speak or read? What can you do? You can only act. You have to act it out. And that's what Jesus was doing. He only does this with the deaf, the blind. He acted out before the man what he's going to do for his hearing, for his speech, evoking the man's faith. And that's almost certainly what Jesus is doing here with this blind man. It's been said for the blind that touch means more than sound. I don't know if that's true, but it sounds like it would be. They can hear, but it seems like they interact with the world more so with with touch. And so to communicate Jesus, he touches this man's eyes, telling him in a symbolic and profound way that he's going to do something for his sight. And that is the case. 
with this touch, healing came. This man's eyes were probably closed. He felt the pressure. He felt Christ's hands, maybe his thumbs pressing in on his eyes. He felt that pressure. Maybe he felt a surge of power. We don't know. But did it work? Could he see? Was he healed? As he slowly opened his eyes for the first time in a long time, he saw light. You just imagine what it would be like to live in a world of complete darkness. Darkness. Even if your eyes are open, darkness. And then finally, just some light comes in. Just, it's amazing. He was healed. It's a miracle. But something's not right. And we learn this from a question. Number three, an unusual question. Where at the end of verse 23, Jesus asks, Do you see anything? you know a thing or two about Jesus, that's an unusual question. Jesus never does this. He never asks if people are better. Because when he heals, he speaks, he commands, you're better, it's done, you're healed. But here, it's almost like he's an eye doctor. And you know when you get tested for new glasses, they put your face up to that contraption and they flash the lenses and like, which one's clearer, lens one or lens two? Number one or number two? It's like, is he fitting this man's prescription for his new eyes? Well, what's going on? It's unusual. When Jesus restores someone's hearing, he doesn't give them a hearing test to make sure all the bugs are worked out. When Jesus makes a crippled walk, he doesn't have him run a few laps to make sure his legs work. It's just, you're done. He knows it. You're healed. It's all as total, complete, instantaneous, except for right here. This is the only instance where Jesus heals someone, but then follows it up with a diagnostic question. And that already should tell you something else, something more is going on here. Jesus doesn't waste words. There are no accidents with Jesus. He knew what he was doing. He knew that he had healed this man partially. Even the question itself, do you see anything, implies that Jesus expected him to see, but not necessarily perfectly. And that's the case. This was the first stage of a two-stage healing. And we're going to find out why. But first, we're going to keep moving And look at this answer. It's also an unusual answer after an unusual question. Number four, there's an unusual answer. Verse 24, he looked up and he said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Jesus touched him. He said, can you see? He's like, yeah, I I think I see men, but they're like trees walking around. His sight was restored. Let's let's first not not brush that aside. His sight was restored. He was blind. He can see. That's amazing. Even if it was blurry vision, he could still see. Any blind person, I'm sure, would be happy to have their vision restored, even if they needed glasses afterward. And that's what he needs. He needs a pair of glasses because he can see, but it's all totally blurred out. He looks up, it says, and he sees literally the men, most likely referring to the 12 disciples, He knew they were there. He probably heard them talking as they were on the road. But now he can see them. It's just they look kind of funny. They look like trees. But they're walking around, so they can't be trees. They must be men. A couple of obvious implications come from his response. First, it seems like he wasn't born blind, as he seems to know what trees look like, and he seems to know what people look like. So he probably wasn't born blind. Secondly, his sight was restored but not perfectly. He could see, but everything was still unclear. Jesus knew this. He did this on purpose. But he wasn't going to leave him that way. 
It wasn't going to let this last for long. Jesus was going to correct his vision for good. And so we have number five, an unusual correction. Fifthly now, an unusual correction. Look at verse 25. Then again he laid his hands on his eyes and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. This is what we expected to see from the very beginning. And what makes this an unusual correction is the fact that it has to happen. Jesus has to correct his work. That never happens. There's something peculiar going on about all of this. Either way, I'm sure the blind man doesn't care. He could be healed in ten stages for all he cares. He's just as happy to see again. And I'm really, uh, thankfully, not so foolish to pretend or act like I know what it's like to not be able to see. But I do know what it's like to have terrible, terrible vision where people look like trees. Because if I take off my contact lens, you might not know, and I warned contacts. But if I take them off, I couldn't make out a single person in this room. It all looked like trees or big blurs of color. Just to give you some perspective, the, the eye doctor, you know, the chart, I can barely make out the big E. And that's only because I know pretty much it's going to be an E. It's like, you, it's, just, it's terrible. <clears throat> and this man, I'm sure he was elated that he could see anything at all. Although, he probably wasn't expecting that blurred vision. He probably was banking on, like, okay, I'm going to just see or not see. It's still miraculous. You can't, like, say, well, thanks but no thanks. But, you know, if Jesus can restore, the sight, restore sight to the blind, can you just throw in 20-20 vision? Is that too much to ask for? And the answer is yes, Jesus can. He, he's the creator. He's going to create perfectly and restore perfectly. And that's what he does here. He corrects the man's vision. And who knows, maybe he gave him 20-10, It's a vision of hawks. Who knows? But the man could now see everything clearly, perfectly, vision restored. This miracle is complete. The only thing left is some after-operation instructions. And that's what we have lastly, number six, an unusual command. Even these are strange. Number six, an unusual command. It says, verse 26, And he sent him home, sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And we've seen this a few times before, but that doesn't make it any less unusual. He took him out of the village, and now he's saying, Don't even go back. This man naturally would have wanted to return to his town, his home, to tell people he he could see. He wanted to tell people. He wanted to see people. There's a whole new world for him to explore in the the village. Things he knew about but hasn't seen, doesn't really know. But Christ is like, no, don't go back. Just go to your home, bypass the village. Essentially, don't talk to anyone. Don't, Don't tell anyone. From a human perspective, you would think Jesus wanted all the publicity he could get, something this big. But that's no longer the case. Jesus is not interested in publicity at all. He doesn't want a crowd. Healing the blind was always a big deal. That's a top echelon miracle right there. And if this man goes back into town, it won't be long before a huge crowd forms again and everyone wants healing again. But that's not what Christ wants. That's not what he's interested in. His primary mission was never to heal people. That's not why he came, primarily. And even at that, his public ministry is drawing to a close. He didn't enter Bethsaida to launch a healing campaign. He's just passing through. He doesn't want to start one. And soon he's going to be off. Israel has had their share of signs. So he's done. 
And with that, this little story ends. That's it. That's all there is. What happens to this man? We don't know. Never hear of him again. I have no idea. Presumably, he, he obeyed because no crowd forms. Jesus does just pass on through Bethsaida and moves on. But we have left behind a short, sweet, remarkable little story, even if it is rather out of the ordinary and, and a bit strange. That being said, when we finish looking at it and as we reflect, it's fair to ask now, seeing that so many things are out of place here, just a little weird, it's fair to ask, why is this here? And what's really going on? Is this just a miracle story? It's this little story. It's only recorded, recorded by Mark. So why? Why did God inspire Mark to include this? And right here, what, what, what's the purpose? It is just an ordinary miracle? Which, kind of an oxymoron, right? Ordinary miracle, there's no such thing. But that being said, there is a greater significance to this event. There is more going on. First and foremost... This miracle, like all of the miracles, is a sign. This is a sign. Even though the townspeople were kept out, we're not. We can see it. This is a sign, like all of them, a sign that Jesus is the divine Messiah. We've taken this for granted because we've seen so many signs like this in Mark, many healings. But let's, let's not ignore the fact that Jesus does what no one else can do. He opens the eyes of the blind. In this, we see the divine power of God on display and we see messianic prophecies fulfilled. So this, this is another sign, like all the rest, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And let's not take that for granted. That being said, there, there is still more here. I think there's actually a greater layer of significance to this text, especially when you read this story in light of its context. And that's really the kicker, because this is not just a random story thrown in here. There's no such thing as a random act with God. Rather, God sovereignly orchestrated all of these events, all of the, all of the events of Christ's life, and he inspired their record for truth, to communicate truth. And this event obviously was designed to make an impact on the blind man. That's obvious. But also, this was designed to make an impact on the 12 disciples and on us. It's an especially significant passage, and why do I say that? Well, the text and the context lead us to believe that there's something more than a healing going on here. I want you to think about this. The link to the context here revolves around sight, this idea of sight. Because here, what do we have here? We've got a blind man. He's got eyes, but he can't see. And what happened in the immediately previous passage? We encounter Jesus He's with his disciples, and he's so frustrated with them. Why? Because they have eyes, but they can't see. And he asks them all the same questions. He says, verse 17, Do you not yet see? Verse 21, Do you not yet understand? And their problem is not physical blindness, but spiritual blindness. At this point, even after two years of ministry and countless miracles, do the disciples understand his power? No. Have they figured out his identity? No. Do they know his mission? No. They're still left in the dark. But in the very next passage, the very next passage, what happens? A complete change takes place 
in the understanding of the disciples, that their spiritual vision comes alive. They miraculously go from blind to seeing, seemingly overnight. What happened? Well, look, look at the next passage. Look at Mark 8 and start at verse 27. Very next verse, it says, Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do the people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Peter speaks up as a representative of the twelve, and he, he finally gets it right. He says, you are the Christ. This is the first time in Mark's gospel that we've heard these words come out of the mouth of a human. We've heard this before. We know who Jesus is. The demons tell us. We hear it from the demons because they know who Jesus is. But this is the first time that anyone gets it right. Finally, the disciples after all this time. But what just happened? Because literally right before this, they weren't getting that. So what changed? Well, the answer is, their eyes were opened. Jesus makes the blind see. We, we kind of get this impression that Jesus did for his disciples, spiritually, what he did for this blind man physically, right? And that's precisely the point. Jesus is the cure for blindness. He's the only one who can make you see anything. And if he doesn't make you see, you're not going to see. But if he does... You will. That's the point. There's a great parallel in Matthew 16, the parallel passage, where after Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, after he confesses, remember what Jesus says next to him? He says this, Matthew 16, verse 17. Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven revealed this to you. I hope you can get how huge this is. Peter finally gets it. He finally puts it together. You know, Jesus, he sure talks like the Messiah, and he acts like the Messiah, and he works wonders like the Messiah. I'm starting to think that Jesus is the Messiah. It's like, yeah, bingo, finally you got it right. He's the Christ, the Son of the living God. But is Peter's conclusion to his credit? No, it's not. And Jesus says, hey, you got it right, but you got this because my Father gave you eyes to see. He revealed this to you. So just, just to pull this all together, in case you're not tracking, after years of ministry, the disciples, they still don't get who Jesus is. They're still in the dark because they're still spiritually blind. And that blindness culminates in the middle of Mark chapter 8 when they're on the boat. But almost immediately after that, just a few days later, Mark 8, 27, they, they start to get it. They get who Jesus is. And how did they finally arrive at that conclusion? What, what happened to them? The answer again is Jesus makes the blind see. And we're actually, we're not told what happened to the disciples spiritually on the road. We don't know. But we are told what happened to this blind man. We do have an illustration here. And what we find then is that our little story in Mark 8 doubles as an illustration, a, a living parable. You could say, God purposely orchestrated this whole thing. I mean, this, this was real. This happened, but God orchestrated it in part 
to minister to the blind man, in part to demonstrate the deity of Jesus, but also in part to serve as an object lesson for the disciples and for us. What must happen to you if you are to see Jesus? He must touch you. He must give you eyes to see. And the great conclusion, like we learned and alluded to last week, Jesus is the cure for spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness, it's a universal problem. We're born with it. It affects everyone. It's potent. Because of sin and the fall, we are all born blind and lost, given over to the darkness. Remember 1 Corinthians 2. The natural man cannot understand the things of God. You just can't. You can't see it. You can't even see to find God. Someone must show you the light and bring you to the light. And that someone is Jesus. He is the light and he's come to rescue us from the domain of darkness and transfer us to the light. John 12, verse 46, Jesus said, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in the darkness. This is, as people say, this is a God thing. You ever hear people say that? It's just a God thing. And it is. God must sovereignly make you see. At the same time, though, God has included a human element. He says, you must believe. That's up to you. You must believe. You must follow Christ. You must have faith in him to save you. And if you do, God promises he will. He will transform you and open your eyes. John chapter 8, verse 12, he also said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but have the light of life. So the first major question we have to ask from the passage is, is have you done this? Have you gone to Jesus? Have you cried out to him to make you see? It's a prayer he will always answer. And I pray you have done so, that God has opened your eyes to see the light of life and to believe in him for everlasting life. Now we could technically end here, but we're not quite done. I want to squeeze in one more thing because we still have that lingering question that we haven't answered, which is, why the two-stage healing in the miracle? Remember that? I haven't really talked about that. This is the only time that Jesus healed someone in two stages, so we're still left with well, why. What's up with that? It's certainly not a power issue. Jesus has the power to raise the dead with a single word. So there's something else going on. It's clearly on purpose. There are no accidents with Jesus. So we're left to discern the significance, and there is a significance. Again, I'm convinced that God orchestrated this whole event as a living parable, an object lesson in addition And from this, not only do we learn that Jesus is the cure to spiritual blindness, but we also learn that sometimes spiritual blindness is removed in stages. Understanding the things of the Lord sometimes comes over time. There's a point where your eyes are open, but that doesn't mean you're going to see everything clearly. And why do I say this? Let me show you again from the context. You really have to see this. Before we have, we know, okay, the disciples are blind to Jesus. But somewhere along the road, their eyes are opened. And they figure it out. Jesus, you're the Christ, you're the Son of the living God. Great, they get it. But how good is their vision? Is their vision perfect at this point? Well, not quite. 
Because look, look at this. Look at Mark 8. Right after Peter finally understands the identity of Jesus, what does Jesus say right after that? Look at Mark 8. Mark 8. We'll pick up at verse 31. It says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. So it's like, here it is. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Do you see what's going on here? Jesus, he's never told them this before. This is where it starts, where he tells them the mission now. They get the whole mission. But now their eyes are open. They finally overcome that first hurdle. What's the first hurdle? It's the identity of Jesus. Who is he? And God has opened their eyes and they see, you're, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of the living God. They get the identity of Jesus. So now he tells them, okay, now here's what I've really come to do. I'm going to die. There's a second hurdle now. It's the mission of Jesus. And do they get this? It's like, I, I'm here, and I've come actually to suffer and be rejected by the leaders of Israel and then die. That's what I'm here for. Do they get that? Do they understand that? Not even close. They, they do not accept that. They can't accept a dead Messiah. They finally got to the point where they're, they're like, yeah, you, oh, we get it, you're the Christ. It's like, yeah, I've got to die. They're like, what? That that's not possible. That can't happen. How could the Messiah die? You see, they can see, but not perfectly. Their vision is still blurred. And like the blind man, they're only given partial vision at first. They get Jesus, but only partially. And they too need a second touch to see everything clearly. This divide sets up the second half of Mark, the second eight chapters, where we're going to witness the disciples partially understanding Jesus. Before, they didn't get it at all. Now they get half. And that continues till the end. And they will not have their perfect vision given to them until when? After the resurrection. Like it says in Luke 24, after the resurrection, verse 44, Jesus said to them, he's there before them, raised. He said, these are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, which they didn't get, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. There it was. There's their second touch. They could finally see it all clearly. Like, oh, it makes so much sense. How did I miss it at the, at the first? It's because you couldn't see. You needed some glasses. Right after that, a few, a few days later, many days later, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came and he led them into all the truth. The promised spirit just open the floodgates. Now you can see it all. Here's the Spirit. The end of Mark chapter 8 has been called the continental divide in Mark. The disciples before, they go from misunderstanding to understanding. But it's only partial understanding. And do you want to know why that is? Do you want to, do you want to see a picture of that? Well, then just look at our little passage here in the middle of Mark chapter 8. Our, our two-stage healing of the blind man. It's a picture our passage doubles as an object lesson. And it also explains why the disciples, they totally miss Jesus in the first eight chapters, and now they're going to partially miss Jesus in the second 
eight chapters. Thankfully, though, Jesus finishes what he starts, and he will give them perfect vision in the end. They will be brought to a full truth after the resurrection. And these five little verses, seemingly insignificant, they contain a lesson in themselves, but they double as this lesson. And it's a critical text for understanding the disciples and discipleship. Now, real quick, I want to throw in here that you do have to be careful because things are a little different for us today. Because us as disciples today, we're living after the resurrection already. We're already living after the coming of the Holy Spirit. So I don't want you to leave thinking that there's some two-stage process to salvation or spiritual vision. That's not the point. That's not what's being said. Uh, Just to be clear, at salvation, when you truly know the Lord, you're, you're instantly transformed. Born again, you're given brand new eyes, and you can see everything clearly. Salvation now, it's a one-step deal. You fully understand the gospel. You have to fully understand the gospel to be saved. God gives you eyes, and you see. You can see clearly your eyes are opened. However, just because you now, if you're in Christ, just because you have eyes and you can see, doesn't mean you use them to see. That doesn't mean you see everything perfectly. It's even true for the apostles after the resurrection. They, they still miss some things. And that's because even after the resurrection and after the Spirit, we still suffer the effects of the fall and sin. Sin still blurs our vision. And in a sense, we too are still awaiting a second touch of Jesus when we'll see everything perfectly. And we call that glorification. It's when you go to heaven, you'll see it all. It's like Paul said, in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, he's like, for now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. And what we really learned is that the principle of blurred vision still applies, and you still have to watch out. We don't live in that age of the disciples, but Blurred vision can still strike today. It's not because you haven't been given eyes. If you know the Lord, you have eyes. But you can still miss the Lord because you can be clouded by sin or you just don't use them. You don't use your new eyes. If you're in Christ, you have eyes to see Him clearly, to know the Lord. But that doesn't mean you do. There's a whole new world you have to to embrace. It's like imagine you're born blind. And you, you know the world, but you've never seen anything. You don't know what a car looks like or a computer. You just you have an idea, but you don't really know. And then you can see. You're miraculously made to see. You can see everything, but that doesn't mean you know everything. You don't have to come to understand this whole new world that your eyes have been opened to, right? Spiritually, the same is true. Salvation, you're given eyes, and you can see. But that doesn't mean you know everything. It's really just the beginning of a life of pursuing the knowledge of the Lord and seeking to know him more. That's why Paul prays in Ephesians 1.18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. And, and many times Paul prays that Christians would grow in their spiritual understanding. And why is that? Because we need it. We're not perfect just because we're saved. You have eyes. But the real takeaway then is use them. We have the privilege of living in this time after the resurrection, after the coming of the Holy Spirit. And when Christ saves you, you have your vision. But do you use it to pursue the Lord, to know Him? 
And I'll leave you with that. Pursue a greater vision of God. How do you do that? Through his word. He's left behind the light to guide us. And if you're serious about really knowing the Lord and pursuing him, then use your eyes, your new spiritual eyes, to to seek him. How many times have you heard someone who, they say, you know, I've been reading my Bible for decades. I just, I don't get it. I don't understand what it says. And you know why that is? It's because they're spiritually blind. But when they come to a genuine salvation, what do you hear? It's like, oh, it all makes sense. I can see. I can finally get it. Now that's true. You can see. That doesn't mean you will. You have to read. You have to dive. You have to study and pursue the Lord. And let that be your thought as you leave here. We still await perfection. We still long to see the Lord face to face. But he's given us the light. And so use your eyes to pursue him, to know him, to glorify him, to enjoy him. And we do that by living in the light of his word. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Redeemer, we we, we thank you for this, this precious little passage, so small yet a powerful message indeed. And we thank you more so for, for opening our eyes, for revealing yourself to us. We all once lived in the domain of darkness, lost, blind, groping for the truth, yet we couldn't find it. We couldn't find you. Unless someone lifted the veil from our eyes, we could not see. Thank you for sending Christ for that very reason, to set captives free and to transfer us from the domain of darkness into the light. We thank you for doing that and giving us eyes to see. Lord, we run to you now. We have a new spiritual vision. I pray for all of us here that we use it to to know you, to seek you, to, to understand you. Our eyes have been opened, but now we have a whole lifetime, really an infinity to behold God. We can never search your depths, but we can start and enjoy that. And I pray we do. We take seriously the challenge to, to know you and to behold your word, to see you. And in that, you are glorified. Not just as a head knowledge, Lord, but a heart knowledge. This affects our lives and, and changes the way we live. But nonetheless, as we behold you and behold your glory, we are changed and you are glorified. Thank you for this. May we leave here just rejoicing in the vision we have in Christ, using that for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.